Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Joshua Zimmerman to the podcast. Josh is an associate professor at Yeshiva University in New York, and the author or editor of three previous volumes on Polish, Jewish, and Italian history during the 20th century. Today, he's here to talk to us about his new book, The Polish Underground and the Jews, 1939 to 1945. The book is an extraordinarily rich account of the way the Polish underground interacted with the Jews of Poland. It ranges from high politics to a series of moving portraits of individual people and actions. By the time I finished the book, I had a much clearer sense of the attitudes, connections, and actions that characterize the home army's relationship with the Jews of Poland. It's a really great book, and I'm looking forward to talking to Josh about it. So with that, Josh, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to start by just giving you a chance to talk to us a little bit about your background. How did you become a historian? Um, how did you become interested in Poland and the Second World War? Uh, how did you get to be who you are now? Um, well, that's an in- interesting question. So um, first, my father is a retired professor of American history. Hmm. And for sure that had an impact because growing up um, as a child and adolescence, um, there were uh, a huge amount of books in the house. Uh, the walls were lined with bookshelves, and almost all of the books were on different periods of, of history. And uh, I used to, I began maybe as a, you know, 13, 14 to really leaf through some of those and talk to my dad about it, that I uh, attended some of his lectures and, and certainly admired uh, him. And, and his style of lecturing and, and kind of aspired to be able to do something like that. And then secondly, I think I always had this kind of innate curiosity um, about the world and maybe the past and how we got to where we are um, um, today and enjoyed kind of like exploring, exploring, um, you know, like causes of things and kind of wondered, you know, um, how did, for example, you know, how, you know, did we achieve the society we're in now, what was it like before, these kinds of things. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's where I started my interest. I do remember once at the age of 12 asking my grandfather about his past. Who was, uh, he was born in um, this country in 1907 and asking him what it was like to grow up uh, in Chicago um, at various times in his life. And I, when I look back at that, that was like the young kind of interviewer, but also, uh, you know, like, like uh, it showed my interest in, in, I think, the past and history, and it became, you know, personalized with an interest in hmm. my family background. So how did you decide to make it a profession? Okay, so um, probably I would trace that back to high school when I became particularly interested in history classes and in kind of impassioned with themes that were raised uh, in history. And I do remember being particularly interested in World War II when the subject um, came up. Um, being Jewish, clearly the Holocaust was was a very um, kind of meaningful topic. And uh, that subject came up in my class, at home, as well as in classes. And I mm-hmm. did become drawn to that topic. It was one of, of, of many topics. Uh, and I think somewhere in that process of taking history classes at high school, um, 
in high school, I did want to ask my father if I could go to a, a lecture of his. And the combination of that with books and family history, I decided before I went to college that I wanted to be a history major, and, so, and that was my major. And uh, I never really swayed from that aspiration. Uh, I don't remember any time as an undergraduate of considering another major, for example. So somehow I was just always drawn to the history classes. I do remember taking uh, my freshman year at college a modern European history survey, and uh, I was extremely um, kind of fascinated with the readings, the themes, and it kind of be I became kind of impassioned uh, about that. So it's probably a combination of that, maybe doing well in the class, having the positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things, you know, led me to think this is what I want to. This is what I want to do. And I also remember around that time thinking that <clears throat> the PhD was such a kind of like noble aspiration. <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, I was asking my father and, and looking at the numbers and the years. It, it took so many years, but at that very end, you had achieved this, you know, this, mm-hmm. this recognition, but also kind of like a stamp of maybe. A, a stamp of uh, legitimacy that you're kind of a, a specialist in history if you've gone through this training that all seemed very very attractive that I could go get that like historical training and then go off on my own research interest so, so how do you present yourself are you a European historian or a, a Jewish historian or a right. Polish historian right so um because I straddle different uh, in in a way subjects because I'm uh, in modern European history, um, also history um, of Poland, and then the Holocaust, and also Jewish history. Um, I, you know, I have, I guess, to be honest, I have different answers to that question depending on kind of maybe like a circumstance. But my training mm-hmm. is 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 specifically in modern European history. So I got my mm-hmm. PhD at Brandeis, and it's called comparative history. Is is the, mm. is the name of the degree, but really what it is is modern European history from roughly 1500 to the present, and that's what we did all our training in. So, 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 because uh, you did a track when you went there. Since I was European, that's all you did. So, so that's really mm-hmm. my training is in modern European history. Hmm. Well, let's turn to the book. Um, and the subject your book addresses has has something of a long and tangled historiography. Can can we start by asking you to say something a little uh, something about how historians and politicians and others have have presented the relationship between the Polish underground and the Jews in the past? Yes, um, that's a kind of central uh, starting point of the book because the reason that I uh, chose this topic is because um, there was no single scholarly monograph on the topic when I began, and my book actually um, is the only monograph uh, on the Polish underground and the Jews that covers the entire period of the war from 1939 to 1945 in all regions. So since I started my research, there's been an extraordinary um, upsurge of interest in the topic of the Polish underground and the Jews in Poland, uh, and I'm, I'm going back to around the year 2005. So in the last 10, 11 years, there's, there's, there's been many, many publications on this topic. Um, but in Poland, there tends to be a kind of regional historiography. So there's the history of this in one town mm. or in one region. 
And then the closest that's come to what, what a book that in Polish has come to what I uh, have done is a book about the topic that covers the period 1939 to 1942 only. Um, and, and so, so, so mine is the first to kind of be a to, to kind of investigate the issue as a whole, looking at the topic from the beginning of the war to the end uh, and covering all regions. And now, I, when I began uh, my interest, I, I realized that that there were kind of two camps uh, or two schools of historiography. So one was what you may call a kind of camp of condemnation. They, mm-hmm. This tended to be... Um, Jews, Jewish historians uh, who were writing, but not only, and it essentially argued that the Polish underground was endemically um, anti-Semitic, uh, and at worst, elements of it collaborated with the, the Nazis in the destruction of Polish and European Jewry, and at best, it was it just turned a blind eye. It was neutral. So, and the the kind of like seething resentment and anger. Uh, often kind of leaped off the page in these works. The the, the first historians were uh, uh, who wrote on this topic, people like Israel Gutmann, for example, or Ruben Eisenstein, mm-hmm. or Shmuel Krakowski. Um, all of them are Polish-born Jews who either left before World War II, and like Ruben Eisenstein and grew up in England, uh, I'm sorry, and, and spent the rest of his life in England, or in the case of like Shmuel Krakowski and Israel Gutmann, were actually um, uh, survivors of the Holocaust from Poland, who then uh, made Aliyah after the war and settled in Palestine and became Israeli citizens, and then trained and got their PhDs and became professional historians there. So, so that was a kind of like um, avenue that was really looking at and seeing only the negative side. Now, on the other side, during the same period, we're talking about from the 1950s through the 1980s, uh, inside communist Poland, there was there was silence about the subject of the Jews in uh, in, in any studies about the Polish underground. Um, plus, there was that complicated um, there was the the, the very uh, complicated issue that in communist Poland, um, the Polish underground home army was at initially demonized by the Soviet Union and communists as pro-Nazi. Then there was, uh, then after de-Stalinization, you know, there was some works on the subject, very few, uh, none of them mentioned Jews. Uh, when Jews do appear in these, um, and they rarely do, it was only in as far as um, they were subjects of, or objects of Polish uh, aid, or Polish, uh, you know, um, uh, help to the Jews, mm-hmm. and so that's really where it where it, where it stood. You, it was like a, a, a huge gulf in between these two extremes, and so the Polish side, some have called the camp of apologetics, and the Jewish side, the camp of condemnation. And so what happened is that is that starting in the late 1980s and with the fall of communism, right, and then uh, we had you know democracy come to Poland and, uh, you know, open society. And then there started to be a diversification in Poland um, about this topic, and some began to investigate and find um, some cases of, of um, atrocities committed by the Polish underground uh, uh, on the Jews, um, but also um, 
the other side, which is cases of righteous Gentiles within the Polish underground. So in, in that time, let's say the 1990s, uh, that that camp of, uh, on the other side, the camp of condemnation began to soften and break down a little bit, which is that a new generation of historians began to emerge. Um, and some of them uh, started to write more balanced accounts so that, so that cases of Polish underground uh, crimes against the Jews uh, were juxtaposed with cases in which members of the Polish underground um, actually uh, risked their lives to help Jews, and in some cases not just individuals, but whole like subdivisions and so forth. Now, in in both cases, none of the, none of this topic had not yet been subjected to a to a kind of full scale scholarly monograph. It tended to be comments inside monographs on other on broad issues like the history mm -hmm. of the Holocaust mm -hmm. or history of Poland during World War II, and in, inside these general works there'd be some, uh, some comments, you know, so I draw this out in my introduction, you know, where, where for example, you know, in a 2003 um, uh, history of the Holocaust, uh, the, this particular writer, you know, kind of falls back on the old camp of condemnation, and when the home army gets attention on a single page of a history of the Holocaust, it's just said that it was um, deeply anti-Semitic and prejudiced against the Jews. So, so you'd find little kind of elements and remnants coming back, and partly, I believe, it's because there was no solid scholarly research, um, full-scale scholarly research done on the topic. They were more like personalized research, maybe mm -hmm. on a single individual, or someone who's, or or me, or memoir literature. Um, in which this subject um, appears or testimonies, and so they were kind of like, uh, you know, um, you know, small uh, kind of like small elements that would be added to a greater a greater work, but no, no systematic study starting with, you know, the actual, uh, you know, official policy of the Polish underground, at, you know, at its foundation statements they they made of official positions which they came out with. And then how this mm -hmm. kind of like evolved over time. So, so um, now I, I want to just add to that that um, that since 2005, there's been um, a whole new kind of uh, camp of Polish historiography surrounding this or this journal called um, Holocaust. Uh, it's, it's called Zagłady Żydówek in Polish, meaning the uh, the Holocaust uh, mm. and it's a it's a journal that comes out once a year, um, and the historians in that they're they're um, related in some ways or affiliated with the Polish Academy of Sciences uh, mm -hmm. in in Warsaw, and they started the Center for Holocaust. It's called the Polish Center for Holocaust Research in Warsaw, and they put out now eleven uh, issues of this of this yearly journal, each one of which has an average of. 700 pages of, wow. of original scholarly research, and it emphasizes documents. So it means that that every article um, is almost every main article is accompanied by um, a reprint of, of about 20 to 30 archival documents to kind of like hmm. back up. And these have been kind of these like brave new historians who have challenged what some have called the myth of Polish innocence during World War II and come out with, um, you know, articles showing uh, the Polish underground's uh, 
um, you know, cases of Polish underground crimes against the Jews. So clearly in Poland now we have a, we have a balance of, of those who are doing solid historical research and those who are kind of defending the good name of Poland, but they're kind of working that out inside Poland. Mm. Whereas uh, under communism, it was kind of, you know, uh, it was different. It was, it was historians in the free world, you know, writing about this, and then historians in Poland, you know, uh, 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 defending Poland during World War II, and not really being allowed any any kind of uh, freedom of, of research. Hmm. Well, in your book, you make the point that um, that it's pre-war attitudes and pre-war party structures that that shape the behaviors and idea of wartime leaders. So, can you quickly sketch for us the spectrum of attitudes and policies toward Jews in pre-war Poland? Um, sure. So, what I did in chapter one is something I think is unique because the subject of uh, Polish-Jewish relations between the two world wars is is uh, um, been subjected to huge scholarly uh, treatment and scrutiny. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a distinct period, and it has its kind of like this historical writing has its own um, history, and there's a lot of people working on that. So, so the basic outlines um, are known of this interwar period. What I try to do um, is look at the period 1935 to 1939, mm-hmm. basically the eve of World War II, um, and look at those elements of Polish politics those uh, political parties and leaders who then uh, took over the political and military wings of the Polish underground um, under the, the German occupation, German and Soviet occupations in World War II. And, uh, and the, try to explain is that, is that the leaders of the Polish underground, um, and we're talking about that section of the underground that's or Polish government, in exile, uh, first in, in France, then in England, that those leaders were members of the pre-war opposition parties. So I try to explain that the Polish government uh, that was in place when World War II um, began uh, was, uh, of course, uh, was um, you know dismembered. Um, most of them went into exile, and because of uh, their behavior, that most of them went into exile, even the the military leaders um, um, within, you know, two weeks of, of the war, they were discredited uh, in the aftermath of the complete collapse of the of the Second Polish Republic, and the government in exile that formed was made up of members of the pre-war opposition, because that those members of the pre-war opposition were the ones uh, who are now in kind of favored by the uh, French um, government and the Western uh, democratic powers. Uh, and and so my point was to say, if these were the leaders of the Polish underground, not the members of the government in the period 1935 to 1939, so what were their views, the, the views of the pre-war opposition that then led the underground? And so I go through that, and what I find is that it was extraordinarily varied uh, and mixed. Um, and it consisted primarily of these five parties, and the the chapter you know ends with, uh, if you remember, with the chart that mm-hmm. kind of uh, goes over the the basic positions. And the chart is called the official pronouncements of the major opposition parties on the Jewish question, 1936 to 1939. And it sh- you know it shows this 
this this varied and mixed um, policies, uh, ranging from the Polish Socialist Party, which was um, solidly and consistently in favor of complete civil rights um, for Jews and complete equality before the law, uh, down to the so-called um, National Party, which was the right-wing uh, opposition party, which was um, openly anti-Semitic and favored by 1939, um, you know, the mass emigration of Jews out of Poland as, as the kind of like solution to what they called the Jewish the Jewish problem. Um, and, and, and so you have this, this unusual situation where, let's say by the time that the Poland collapses and the Polish underground in Warsaw forms, you have rubbing shoulders members of the Polish Socialist Party with those of the of the National Party. So one is pro-Jewish, one is anti-Semitic, and there they're formulating policy together. And so, and 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 what I show is that because you have this variety of uh, you know kind of this cross-section of Polish society represented, it meant that their views on the Jewish problem were immensely varied. Um, throughout the war, and it stems from uh, often from these pre-war um, positions, because in general, those who affiliated with the National Party tended to be sympathetic to anti-Jewish points of view, and those who were sympathetic and uh, identified with the Polish Socialist Party, and I'm just speaking about the, the left and the right here, there were mm -hmm. three middle parties, um, tended to favor complete civil rights and equality. Um, and they and they were both members of the Polish underground, and both of them had soldiers in the army. So, so you know their views differed, and this is partly why people came away after the war, having you know it became kind of somewhat complex and confusing what this organization was. But it tended to be that they they took away you know um, how do you say stories that they heard. And had no about the Polish underground, but I had no idea about its structure, its its you know um, its um, diversity and so forth, uh, and and how it represented a complete cross section of society. Yeah. So so we've used this word Polish underground. Yeah. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question because it is um, something that I actually take up um, in the in uh, a kind of um, explanation. So at the, very, at the very beginning of the book, I have a little explanation of this because it is important. And I think, um, except for people kind of like in Poland who read about this and know their own history, um, I understand that the term Polish underground won't mean something concrete to, to, to most people. And so I try to explain uh, right off the bat that the, that within um, a few days, or actually within a very short time of the collapse of Poland, a government in exile was formed, actually um, on the 30th of September 1939. So we're literally talking about two days after, Amis uh, after armistice was, was um, declared in Warsaw, so that, in other words, that, um, that the fighting came to an official end, and Poland was partitioned within two days in Paris, a Polish government in exile was formed. It was it was recognized by the United States, by Great Britain, by Belgium, by France. Right. So it now became the official representatives. Now, now, uh, 
inside occupied Poland, um, former leaders of the army and members of the pre-war pre opposition parties formed a kind of initial uh, armed force, a kind of underground army, which they called the Union of Armed Struggle, and, and leaders of the parties um, formed a kind of political wing. And after working out differences with the Polish government exile, by November of 1939, um, the Union of Armed Struggle uh, uh, officially, you know, declared that it uh, recognized the Polish government in exile, which then was in Paris, and the government, the Polish government exile, officially recognized its armed force as a part of the Polish armed forces. And so this is the the kind of official structure. And so what it meant is that the when we use the term Polish underground in uppercase, like I do in my book, and I explain that in uppercase it means the, the, the branches of the underground in Poland that swore allegiance to the Polish government in exile and that were recognized by the Polish government in exile. Now, I explained in the introduction that there were many uh, kind of uh, clandestine uh, militias uh, on the far right and Later, the, the Polish communists formed their own underground, and these militias and the Polish communists neither recognized the Polish government in exile, nor does the Polish government in exile recognize them. So what I, what I do here is I confine my analysis to the behavior of the Polish underground uppercase, that organization that was officially recognized uh, in exile, and which, which recognized that government, and I show that about three in every four underground fighters in occupied Poland were part of this official underground recognized by, by the government in exile. Now, to me, this is very critical because on the far right, we had an organization called the National Armed Forces, which was openly anti-Semitic. It was the extreme right. It did not recognize the Polish government in exile, nor did the Polish government in exile recognize it. Now, this changed in 1944 when a part of it, a part of it merged with the Polish underground and recognized. But, but you know, that was well after the Holocaust had started. But in those cases where that underground militia attacked Jews, and and this happened um, often, and they were known to be hostile to Jews, um, this act was not an official act of the Polish underground um, because it was not recognized by the Polish uh, government exile, nor, uh, nor did it recognize the Polish. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like these rogue groups who are out there, um, you know, uh, kind of endemically anti-Semitic, also, you know, profoundly anti-Russian, anti-communist, anti-German, uh, and they're, they're fighting uh, for Poland that they want, which is one that would be, be, be yes, without Jews, but also without other minorities. They want a kind of uh, hmm. kind of homogenous ethno ethnographic Poland, and they represent that tradition. But it's important that we distinguish between uh, the members uh, of the official Polish underground and then that right wing, and then there's that whole communist uh, underground that takes place. So I hope that clarifies some of this issue of of the, the term Polish underground. No, that's great. 
And, and reading about it, I was really surprised at how extensive the underground's ability to pers- to publicize its ideas at home and, and, and to communicate this information and ideas to the government in France and, and, and then in Britain. Right. How does this happen? How do they publish these newspapers? How do they send these cables? How do, how do they manage to do this in a state under occupation? Right. So that's just an extraordinary tale of, of, of you know, heroism and bravery uh, because, first of all, membership in the underground was punishable by death. So that's hmm. something we should know. So, so just literally being found with an illegal newspaper uh, underneath somebody's, in your internal coat pocket, uh, to, you know, that in itself was grounds for immediate arrest uh, and even hmm. greater if you were found to be distributing it as a member of the underground. That, that also carried the death penalty. So this was very, very dangerous work. Um, how did they do it? So Poland um, has this tradition of what we may call the romantic insurrectionary tradition. So going back you know, to the 18th century when this general, uh, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, you know, le- leads this uprising uh, against the Russians uh, and fails. Uh, and the following year, in 1795, Poland is, is completely uh, dismembered and wiped off the map of Europe. But then there's several armed uprisings that take place in the next 125 years. 1830, uh, 1863, there's one in Galicia. And in all these cases, um, they literally like declared acts of secession, and now we're operating. Uh, uh, and then once once that failed, they were operating underground. So there's a, there is this kind of like conspiratorial tradition, I think that was drawn upon uh, when once again Poland uh, was under foreign occupation. Now in the case of World War II, what we had were illegal presses. So that's one is illegal printing presses. So each um, so the you know, there, there, were under, there were political parties that went underground, and those parties made up a kind of political wing of the underground. They themselves produced individually newspapers. Then the top leadership of the Polish underground, uh, which, was, which was nonpartisan, had their own um, newspapers. And again, they had these, you know, these underground uh, printing presses. So I, I show that, that the largest circulation underground newspaper by 1943 was printing 43,000 a week. And, and again, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. All underground presses having these these um, dispatching couriers to distribute the, the underground press. And these these uh, papers were vibrant. It's, the, it's believed that the, the home, the combination of the different branches of the Polish underground produced about 1,200 different titles during World War II. And Three huh. of them were produced throughout the entire period of the war, wow. for example. And um, so, so they were able to do this underground and then have these secret uh, kind of like couriers and ways of distributing. So there was this, this there was this, already this, this tradition and they were continuing that. Um, now, in terms of communication between the underground and the government, so they had uh, these kind of couriers who went in and out of occupied Poland. The most famous one is Jan Karski, mm-hmm. who I think you may have, you may have uh, heard of, the Polish mm-hmm. famous Polish courier of the Home Army, uh, who in 1942 um, you know, um, you know, infiltrates into occupied Poland uh, and, and 
went by, I guess, on November of that same year, he's able to get back out uh, and he gets, you know, a face-to-face meeting with the Prime Minister of Poland in London. But in that time he was in Poland, he was a uh, occupied Poland, he was able to meet with um, members of the Jewish underground to uh, to go inside the Warsaw Ghetto so he would have an eyewitness account of what's going on there, um, to record in his mind specific messages from different uh, two different Jewish leaders and to deliver those messages when he got to London to various elements of the Polish government. So that's the case of the uh, uh, we have these secret couriers, and that went on uh, throughout the war. Now, on the other hand, they did they were able to establish wireless um, communications by 1941. Hmm. So they had these like radiograms that they were sending back and forth. So when I was in the archives of the Polish Underground Movement Study Trust in London, uh, they have a huge uh, repository of these underground cables. So you can see the originals there. So, you know, um, sent by the commander of the Polish underground in Warsaw to the prime minister of Poland in London. So you would see these radiograms, official coming in with, you know, uh, dated and then all these, uh, you know, messages on the margins from the prime minister's hmm. office being sent back. And so, so a lot of it um, took place in this way, especially with these, these, these underground couriers. So, so looking at the first, I don't know, three years of the war, and then you feel free to quibble with me about dates because I sure. know that chronology is interpretation. But can you say something about about how the the underground presented and reported on what was happening to Jews in Poland? Um, yes. So in the first three years, right, like nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty two. Yeah, broadly speaking, for 1940, right. So, um, so what I I have a, a, a chapter, chapter three, which is just about um, the Polish underground and the Jews between the beginning of World War II and the German occupation of Soviet Russia in June 1941. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and again, I think this is a very important chapter because because in the polemics on this topic, which many of the works before this were, were often very polemical, um, they, would, they would single out one incident you know, out in the war, 1943, November, in this town, um, and it would be taken, you know, kind of, it would be kind of discussed in a vacuum, as if the Polish underground had no policy before, they didn't develop as if this was, you know, and, and so that's why I'm, for me, this is very important to yeah. kind of like an exposition of, of of their deliberations on Jewish issues, because certainly there were um, communications and discussions on this. So, um, so, sorry. So, your question was in the first three years of the war, what was the basic the basic policy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, in this time, we can say first of all. We have to clearly distinguish um, two periods of the war, and that is first the Soviet-German occupation mm-hmm. between September 1939 and June 1941. And here is a time where one-third of Poland was under Soviet occupation. And the treatment um, of Poles there was arguably much worse than the treatment of Jews in Soviet-occupied mm-hmm. Eastern 
Poland. We know of many things that happened during that time. One is a policy of deportation of Poles. Now, Poles were not the only ones who were deported. Jews also were, but many, many more ethnic Poles. And there was a, an attempt by the Soviets to kind of obliterate the, the Polish um, leadership. And we also have the catastrophe of Katyn in 1940, in which something in the order of 15 to 17,000 Polish army officers were massacred and put in a mass uh, grave. So all these things are happening. So there's there's um, the Katyn massacres, there's the deportation of Poles. Um, we think probably about 1.1 million during this, this period of Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland, um, of whom a quarter million were Jews uh, who were deported to the east, for example. And there was this kind of communization of the area and persecution of non-communists. Uh, Poles were not the only who were subject. Jews who were members of pre-war political parties that were anti-communist, like the Zionists and the Buddhists, were also persecuted. But Poles in general, everyone except, let's say, Polish communists, who were in political, who were politically active, were also were also um, persecuted. Now I say this because um, this is what was going on in the eastern part of Poland. And for the, now, if we go to the uh, to the uh, central and western part of Poland, to German-occupied Poland, in this period of the first 20 months of the war, um, of course things change um, rapidly. Uh, but in the first six months of the war, uh, uh, the kind of terrorist campaign of the Germans was directed more towards the Poles because they had this policy um, of trying to liquidate the Polish educated elite. And we, we have lots of documented proof of this, and I present this uh, in the book. Um, the most notorious case is the one in November 1939, where the governor of the, of, of the general government of Poland, whose seat was in Krakow, convened an academic meeting of the University of Krakow, uh, ostensibly to talk about curriculum changes, but then literally just arrested in one fell swoop the entire faculty of a university. Now, not all of them attended, but that was the kind of level of, of persecution to kind of like destroy that upper layer. Now, now, so as physical violence was being directed more against the Poles, there was kind of what we'll call legal violence directed against the Jews, in which they were preparing a kind of legal campaign for this long-term um, this long-term policy, um, which, let's say, in, at, at this time, uh, was not clear, but we know the legal aspects of it, right, to strip mm -hmm. Jews of citizenship, uh, to bar uh, intermarriage, to isolate Jews inside ghettos, to mark Jews, um, to expropriate their property, right, to impoverish Jews. Um, all this is going on uh, without anyone knowing what is the long-term plan. But So what we can say is that, let's say, by the middle of 1940, in the first, let's say, eight months of the war, it could be reasonably argued that the Poles were uh, suffering more than the Jews. And so this was, let's say, the initial position of the Polish underground. Um, Jews rarely came up in this in this um, discussion. I, I try to show the first writings about it where they appear in the press and so forth, where there are, and, and they are documenting uh, in the press um, uh, um, things like the November 1939 decree mandating uh, that Jews wear uh, external markings by law, for example, and then the mm -hmm. decrees on ghettoization. So they're, 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 
they're documenting that. And um, but it's it's very difficult for them or anybody else to see in this haze of of laws any kind of uh, clear overall plan about the Jews. Um, uh, they just know that there is a an absolute legal persecution going on with them and this complete separation and uh, of them. And then of course the the kind of devilish um, uh, ordinances to build walls and curl Jews inside these walled um, ghettos. Uh, what I document is that in the Polish underground press, there's there's just simply, um, in general, and I found few exceptions, that at this time, let's say, um, between the first ghetto that's created in the end of 1939 through the beginning of 1941, where there's mass ghettoization, we think that by March 1941, 80% of Polish Jews inside the German zone were already in ghettos, that this is hotly condemned inside the Polish underground press. It's kind of this like devilish plan. Um, um, I quote many of these these papers, um, you know, just as kind of like faithful reporting on what it says. I also mm-hmm. kind of, you know, try to put in a larger context and, and to say that while these are, these kind of like articles are, extraordinary in their like moral condemnation what is also surprising is how few of them there are so if there were let's say about 200 newspapers published at that time let's say by 1940 by the polish underground what i found is that is that actually very few of them even commented on jews but the ones that Hmm. did hotly condemned them i only Mm -hmm. found one case in which a polish underground and again when i say that i'm talking about the official um, Polish underground recognized by the government in exile and, and the and those and the underground that recognized the government in exile. So, so their presses of those I only could find one that was kind of like tainted with pre war anti Semitic uh, kind of like uh, propaganda um, against Jews. I only found one but but every every other one that commented on them was was to to kind of like introduce a kind of moral compass and say they, what's going on with the Jews here is insane, and the Germans have crossed a red line. Like that, that maybe is unprecedented in history. Um, we had, you know, some say we have to do something, but others just keep it at that. So that that's what we say going into, you know, 1940, then 1941. So, for example, when the uh, when the Warsaw Ghetto is created and then it's sealed in November 1940. Um, now, this is, of course, the largest Jewish community in Europe and the mm-hmm. second largest in the world, uh, about four, uh, close to 400,000 Jews. They make up about a third of the city. So the, the, when that ghetto was created, uh, the, the, the level of condemnation is, is extraordinary, um, and partly because in order to create that ghetto, uh, they, had to, they had to literally do a kind of... Um, you know, like an ethnic uh, rearrangement of the whole mm-hmm. of the whole city. So it's not only Jews who were. We know that about um, you know about a hundred and eighty thousand Jews lived outside of the zone of the ghetto had to be now forcefully put in the ghetto. But then we think that um, um, you know less numbers, but but uh, you know upwards of let's say ninety thousand ethnic poles had to also be moved. So it was like a, a two-way rearrangement of city hmm. 
to make it to, to, to fulfill the German requirement that there be a single Jewish quarter, a Polish quarter, and a German. So there's a lots of kind of like profound um, uh, profound uh, condemnation of that. Now that's 1940, and we get into 1941, and of course, uh, when the Germans invade in June 1941, we have an entirely new era, mm-hmm. um, and you know, uh, they're, 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 the the level of atrocities um, now shifts distinctly from Poles uh, to Jews. Um, I, I do want to mention that prior to prior to the German invasion of Soviet Russia. So I did find, you know, internal reporting of the Polish underground around March and April of 1941. So we're getting close to that, where they begin to communicate back to, um, you know, back to London at this point, uh, the government exile changed to London, that they believe that at this point, there's been a shift and that the Jews are treated worse than the Poles, and so that and that there may be like a catastrophe on their hands. But there's just a beginning of assessment from the underground intelligence that something is going on with Jewish policy. It's becoming more severe. Um, the ghettoization of the Jews is uh, is becoming um, uh, the suffering under the ghettos is is increasing exponentially. Uh, and it's unclear what's going to be the future, but it does appear now that there's more random uh, violence against Jews, uh, and, and that they are now the, the kind of like the number, kind of like should be a priority of of of, uh, of aid and so forth. So, so you you do see a kind of sympathetic uh, sympathetic voice inside the internal communications. And when I say internal communications, I look at the um, records of the Polish underground Home Army. Uh, in which you have the commander of the Home Army um, communicating uh, with the Polish government in London uh, and and doing kind of like they were quarterly reports. And so he would write up, he would he would get reports from from local areas all over occupied Poland. Um, he would call those together and then synthesize them and produce reports and have his own commentary. And then he hmm. would send that by courier to London. So there in London we have these summaries, and that's where we can we can we can view those. And in those, um, uh, what what I found is that beginning in the in late 1940 and early 1941, Jewish topics of the subject of Jews begins to appear more frequently. So whereas let's say up to the middle of 1940, there's very little. There's some, but very little. Clearly, the frequency increases. And we and more and more of those reports, the commander of the Home Army, uh, who was a general named Stefan Robetsky, um, is kind of like bringing to the attention of the government exile that the policy, German policy on Jews, is becoming is becoming more and more severe, and that the conditions inside these ghettos is becoming worse and worse. And something, you know, it, it's not clear what has to be done, but just the reporting itself is. It, I, I often observe that, let's say, as we approached the middle of 1941, uh, where the commander of the underground is getting reports that, that conditions are deteriorating dramatically in the ghetto, he's becoming more concerned, and mm-hmm. kind of like the tone of his writing, you can tell, is more exasperated. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's um, almost like the, the, it's like 
a kind of a shock at at what the what's going on inside these ghettos, which is which is uh, you know malnutrition, disease, hunger. So food policy clearly is is having this effect, and uh, um, and so he's he's clearly concerned about that, and there's there's no doubt. And so the government in London is getting these reports, and uh, I think they're you know not exactly sure what to do with them, but but you can see an increasing concern. Um, so what I was going to say is that so even before the German invasion of Soviet Russia, you have um, a shift in underground intelligence. Uh, showing more concern about the Jews. Now, after that, let's say in the second half of 1941, um, of course, we have now a total and complete catastrophe on our hands, and that is with the formation of these so-called Einsatz group and these special task forces who, when they went into eastern Poland and then into uh, the, the further beyond, into the center of the Jewish former Jewish pale with dense Jewish populations, and they were getting reports of mass massacres, of mass murder by these special operations forces of, of whole Jewish communities. <clears throat> of course, now we're talking about an entirely different level of reporting. And, uh, you know, the, so if we're just looking at central, uh, the, kind of like the central authorities of the Polish underground, um, they were very concerned, and they're writing more frequently to London. Um, and the reports that they're sending are that get to London then are in some cases being publicized uh, uh, and they're giving press conferences for example or they're leaking documents to the Western media um, and and so the underground ends up playing a critical role in getting news out about what's going on mm -hmm. with the Jews um, mm -hmm. because we should remember that the Polish government in exile in London at this time had Jewish representatives inside um, inside their institutions, so they had a kind of parliament in exile called the National Council, in which there were Jewish members. Um, and when I say Jewish members, I mean in in the East European sense, which is that which is that they they actually re represented Jewish political parties. Um, in the in this case, at this time, it was the Zionists, and so they they weren't just members of the Polish government who happened to be Jews, but they literally were representing, they were representatives officially of the Jews. Uh, and so, so it's clear that when this, this reports of atrocities are arriving, you know, the Jewish members of the National Council, now we're talking at this point, there's just, there's only one who represents this kind of, um, uh, uh, his, his name is Schwarzbart, who, who represents um, the Jews. There are other members who are who happen to be Jewish but don't represent Jewish parties, but they are then leaking, helping, or you know, putting pressure on the government to to to, to leak these documents um, out to the media, and that's why the New York Times, the Times of London, um, have early reporting on this. It's coming mm -hmm. from if you re actually go in and read these these press reports from the New York Times or the Times of London um, or the Chicago Tribune, you'll see it says you know. Um, today we spoke with members of the Polish government who provided for us documents that prove or suggest, you know, so you can see that this is, this is, you know, one of their agendas is to get out 
news about what the Germans are actually doing in their country and what they're doing to their citizens and so forth. So, so that's a that's a new era now. That really takes us up to the end of 1941 and um, and the beginning of 1942. Now, nobody can anticipate this is can anticipate what is about to come, which is that which is that the Germans will shift their policy from emigrationism, that is to kind of like this mad search for some kind of territorial solution uh, to the Jewish problem that will allow them to expel, you know, like the whole of European Jewry to some distant land. Um, and as that possibility is closed off um, and they shift to from emigrationism to exterminationism, and that is the idea that that the only means to achieve their goal of a European, of a Europe free of Jews is to actually murder the Jews, um, and they're going to begin to actually build death camps and come up with industrialized mass murder machines. So when that happens, of course, we're on an entirely different plane because mm-hmm. because it's something that nobody could. It was so unprecedented in history, and as some say, it was like a crime without a name. It's hard to even utter in words what they were, what was being thought of, or what they were doing. So, so this, you know, this is an entirely new period. That brings us to 1942. Um, and so what I show is that in the Polish underground press, we have really the, the earliest reporting on the use of gas for the mass murder of Jews. Um, and so it's, it, we're, we're talking about January 1942 is the first, is the first report I see in the Polish language underground press. Um, that then eventually finds its way to the free world. And so it's quite accurate, and it's some of the earliest reporting about what's actually happening because they have underground intelligence. And I, I think one of the most interesting, um, and, I'll, and I'll end here, is that the central organ of the, of the Polish underground home army, right, it's the military wing, it, it was called informational bulletin. So that particular mm-hmm. central organ... Um, had a correspondent inside the Warsaw Ghetto, um, and um, that particular person would 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 get out somehow. They had couriers, you know, because the, the the Warsaw Ghetto was very porous, um, so they were able to get inside and outside the ghetto. So you would get these weekly reports in this newspaper with first-hand accounts. And so, if you actually were to look at that now, only now you understand. These are first-hand accounts because they had their correspondent. Um, his name is Jerzy uh, Grasberg, inside, who was who was official member of the editorial board. I'm um, sending them weekly reports on exactly what's going on. So they were they were printing these first-hand eyewitness accounts, um, and so so they you know so it, it you know it just means that that um, the Polish public was becoming more and more informed. I would say mm-hmm. about what was going mm-hmm. on. Now, in that case, that particular newspaper, the editor-in-chief of that newspaper, was later honored by uh, the state of Israel as a righteous Gentile, um, and, uh, and, and he clearly was profoundly sympathetic um, to the Jews, and uh, he himself was, in, uh, was hiding Jews in his home, um, you know, plus having Jewish reporters inside the Warsaw Ghetto report for him, and so that, so that was very much a kind of like, we could say like a positive um, uh, relationship there. 
Now, as we get into mid-1942, we're talking now about a different era, so I don't know if we want to stop it, because that's when, when uh, death camps um, are um, established, and it's becoming clear that, that Jews are, that the Germans are starting to empty out of ghettos and these so-called, you know, mass, uh, you know, they, they called it, uh, they called it resettlement to the East as a euphemism, but when it became clear that resettlement to the East meant death, and that this information was now getting out, or I'm sorry, that this was being discovered by the Polish underground, so that I think forms a new era, because now the whole world is beginning to be informed about this, and the question is about believability and what is what is to be done, I would say. So, so in this report, how do they characterize Polish responses to what's happening to the Jews? Uh-huh. So, um, to me, this is like one of the most important, excuse me, is one of the most important parts of um, of my book, which is to sh- which mm-hmm. is to say, um, was there a point at which the official press of the Polish underground recognized that there were Poles who were exploiting Jews, who may have even been literally informants for the Nazis? to turn them in, um, um, uh, and were blackmailing Jews. Now, the phenomenon we're talking about, we really have to date it to around this time. That is that when the death camps are established, we're talking at the beginning of, we're talking about from March to July of 1942. Mm -hmm. Now, at that time, mass deportations begin, and it quickly becomes clear, or at least there are Jews who begin to catch on to what's actually going on. You know, the Nazis tried to say, um, you know, we're just, we're just going to improve the situation. We found great, nice, large pieces of land in Ukraine, um, and you'll live in much better conditions. You know, when they started realizing that this is all, uh, this is all a trap, and it's all, you know, a, um, a kind of a plot against them. So, escape from ghettos began to increase exponentially. Whereas before it was believed that possibly a safer place for Jews was inside the ghetto, because because as we know in 1941 um, September the Germans decreed uh, issued a, a legal decree saying saying that the penalty for uh, leaving a ghetto without permission is death. Uh, and so once that happens, uh, it became you know many could could believe that it's much safer to be inside a ghetto, right? When they realized that the Nazis had begun a policy of mass murder of Jews through these deportations, then many Jews start fleeing the ghettos. So, so we can say that this phenomenon begins on mass. Um, it begins to to kind of like uh, you can say take take place at a much higher rate at mm-hmm. beginning of nineteen. Let's say in the spring of nineteen forty two, but set, but clearly into the summer fall of 1942, spring of 1943, and this means that the presence of, of hidden Jews outside the ghettos is much higher. It's at this point that we have the phenomenon of the Polish blackmailer, which becomes a grave threat to Jews. Um, for example, Nahama Tech, the great Polish uh, 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 Jewish sociologist, right, who mm-hmm. is a Holocaust mm-hmm. survivor, and uh, Works at the University of Stanford, um, Connecticut. Uh, you know, wrote um, this um, this book 
in which she she studied. It was called When Light Pierced the Darkness of Christian Aid to Jews Who's in Occupied Poland, and she studied helpers and uh, you know Christian helpers in, in Poland. And, I, and I, one of the things I took away from that work is that is that it became clear that there's a pattern of uh, kind of like views of these Polish helpers, and what they said is that to us, just as dangerous as the Germans were our Polish neighbors. Now, why would they say that? It's because of the fear that a Polish neighbor would then blackmail them or inform on them, because the the death penalty for uh, extended to Poles who aided Jews, um, and, and that is that by the end of 1941, the the decree. Uh, for poles had already been established that the debt that you will you know you will be put to death um, if you are found to be aiding Jews. Now, so this so this this situation so this meant that I mean obviously it was in, it, incredibly um, dangerous for a Polish person to hide a Jew, but I thought that was revealing that many of them could say that as dangerous to us were Polish neighbors, meaning those mm-hmm. who could, mm-hmm. they, they they concealed. As much as possible, that they were hiding from Jews because of fear that someone would take advantage. The Nazis did give incentives; they did issue um, notices saying, "If you give us information leading to the capture of a hidden Jew, um, we will give you." And they talked about uh, money, and, uh, about food, about vodka, these types of things. <laughs> um, and and uh, you know, someone like Steve Paulson, the scholar who who wrote the book called Secret City. Um, about hidden Jews in Warsaw, found that um, a, that a Polish blackmailer, blackmailer who turned in four Jews in one month, could earn the equivalent of a monthly salary of a kind of a of a laborer, huh. and that it became literally like a business. Um, they just calculated, oh, four four Jews a month, then I can you know, huh. make, a, make a salary. So and so they were like. On the prowl, right? So this was a big issue, and the question now—that was a long way to to be uh, kind of like coming around to this, which is, which is when this phenomenon became uh, at a crisis proportion, like in uh, the end of 1942, beginning of 1943, um, when when it became, did the Polish underground condemn these poles? And so what I found is that they did. The criticism mm-hmm. that I always, you know, that I'm aware of before I started writing is that they this was acknowledged by previous scholars but they what they said it was, it was much too late for them to do that because what I found is that it's in the fall of 1942 that the Polish underground press first starts um, you know kind of like um, beginning to discuss the issue and in 1943 they come out with um, with condemnations of Polish blackmailers, in other words, starting to openly admit that the problem is not just Nazi persecution of Jews, but it's Polish uh, blackmailers and Polish informers. Um, And then the Polish underground court um, then makes it clear that that turning in a Jew or blackmailing a Jew is considered treason under law of the Polish Republic, which and who represents the Polish Republic? That is the government in exile in London. And hmm. so they make it clear that collaboration is punishable by death and that blackmailing Jews 
or informing to the Nazis on Jews is included in that definition of collaboration and will bring about the death penalty. So, so what I found is that in, in 1943, you had, you had some cases in which the Polish underground court found, uh, um, tried and, and found guilty Poles for blackmailing or informing on Jews and that they executed them and they announced this execution in mm. their press. And so the one that I, I highlight, and actually I wanted to reprint that notice, but mm-hmm. I had exceeded my 15 image limit, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, um, but that notice was in September 1943. It was on the front page of the central organ of the Polish Home Army. And it just, you know, it just, it was just a, like a legal announcement or like a, a, a kind of a, a court announcement that that this Polish man uh, on this day was um, executed by firing squad for the crime of of blackmailing um, a Jewish family uh, hiding in a in a Polish home, and so I, you know, so I think this is is you know, profoundly symbolic that this, mm-hmm. first of all, took place, but also that it was announced on the on the front page of the highest circulation uh, underground newspaper in occupied Poland, the central uh, the central organ. Now, do, do you do you have some sense about how Poles responded to that? Yes. Yeah, so what I don't see that's really interesting because one thing I found and I um, and that I put in the book is that. Um, I was watching um, the documentary Shoah by Claude Lanson, mm-hmm. and at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum archive, where I do where I did research for this book in part, mm-hmm. they actually have outtake interviews with um, hmm. of that. And so, so people who are interested in the Holocaust in Poland often refer back to the to the very long. It's like a 35-minute interview with Jan Karski. So that's yeah. a, that's a nine-hour documentary. And there's a 35-minute, very prominent interview with John Carter so that's often referred to because because he was the one who actually, as I said before, um, um, met with Jews as a as a representative of the Home Army, um, letting them know that he is a courier. He will be going um, smuggling himself out of occupied Europe. Will be meeting with members of the Polish government. You know, what would you like me to tell you? So he, you know, and, and, and he had this photographic memory, so he could he could hmm. remember what to say. They encouraged him to go into the Warsaw Ghetto so that he could provide a first-hand account. All these. So what I found interesting is that so you you get this in the 35 minutes. Then I was watching the outtake interview, the ones that didn't make it to the documentary, hmm. and then some. I found I stumbled upon something very very significant, which is that. Um, so in the in the in the interview that appears in the documentary, he he recounts conversations he had with these two Jewish members of the Warsaw under uh, ghetto resistance, and he recounts his conversations. They they asked me to say this, you know, they told me to say this to Prime Minister Sikorski. They told me to say this to the Jewish member of the Polish National Council. Um, they told me to say this to members uh, of of the American Jewish communities these things but in the outtake interview he recounts something he didn't that was was left out of the film and that that is is that now mind you this is september 1942 so these 
two members of the Jewish underground said, we have a big problem on our hands, which is the Polish blackmailers. Jews are, are trying to escape from the Warsaw Ghetto, and what are they finding on the other side? Polish blackmailers who are following them and demanding uh, ransom, demanding, uh, the demanding payments, um, stripping these Jews of everything they have or on threat of handing them over the Nazis. This is a huge problem. And, and so they said to Jan Karski, this is what we want you to tell the Polish government uh, in exile. We want you to bring this problem to their attention, that they then go back to the underground in Warsaw and demand that the, uh, that the underground um, find and try these people in the underground court, if they're found guilty, to execute them and to publish notice of this execution um, to provide maximum disincentive to Poles hmm. to let them know that this is serious business. If you're going to do this, you are not only you, you are committing treason against the Republic of Poland, you are collaborating with the Nazis. It carries the death penalty, and the underground represents the Republic of Poland, and they will carry out that, that uh, penalty if they find you now or after the war. It'll, it'll stay with you. Uh, uh, until they find you. So this is what they told Jan Karski to say. So what I try to show in my book is that two months later, um, in November 1942, there he is. He was able to get out. He's sitting with the Prime Minister of Poland. And it's likely that he told, he carried that message to the Prime Minister because not too long after that, the Polish underground started reporting started reporting on the problem of blackmailers, um, some of them were executed and the notices were printed in, in their newspapers. Um, and for example, the one that I uh, reprint in the book, it not only says who the person is, but it says his exact address in Warsaw <laughs> and what are the names of his parents. And I found all that very interesting that they said, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Boris Pilnick, age... 31 that are, you know committed this crime. He was he was executed um, on this day. He is from this. He's from Warsaw. These are his parents' name, and this is his address. I mean, and and it and I think so. In other words, it seems to me like there's a a link between what happened with Jan Karski and that you know that message that he probably since he seemed to have a photographic memory, he probably did actually say that to the prime minister. It mm. may have. And that it's likely that got back to the Polish underground since they were communicating constantly mm -hmm. um, with the request. You know, um, and, and what's interesting, I think, about kind of like Polish Jewish relations is that often these kind of issues fall back on kind of suspicions of motivation. So, whereas one historian may say this happened and it's significant, a kind of skeptic will come in and say, oh, well, of course they did that because. Because if news got out, you know, that Poles en masse were blackmailing, uh, you know, Jews or, or informing on them, you know, that would look very down, poor on the Poles, and that would, that would kind of like undermine their standing in the Western world. Uh, and so we have to do this, you know. So there, there's a lot of this kind of like suspicion of motivations. Um, but, but, but what I tend to do is follow like the follow my advisor, Anthony Polanski, who, who tends to see the behavior as more significant. And so documenting mm -hmm. the behavior. Mm -hmm.
Well, our, our time, we have a little bit of time left, but, but not a ton and a lot of book to go through. But can you say something briefly about practical ties between the Polish underground and, and Jews or Jewish organizations in Poland? And how much practical cooperation was there? Right, that's a, that's um, a really important issue. Um, I try to I try to address that. Um, it, I have two charts that I made up that I find a visual way for the reader to kind of enter that world, because the, like as you said, the concept of Polish underground is very abstract. What is an underground? You know, um, well, it's a complex you know structure, right? Well, so on page 126 of my book and then page 174, I have two charts called Main Structure of the Home Army. And within that structure, I show exactly where lies a subdivision called the Jewish Affairs Bureau, um, headed by Henrik Wolinski. And then we know that the um, that we have a kind of civilian wing of the Polish underground. It was called the Delegates Bureau. And that is that the government assigned one man to be in Warsaw, and he was the official representative of the government. He was called the government delegate, and he had a, a, a kind of like a department. Uh, he had a kind of ministerial uh, department uh, divided into several sub subdivisions, and within that civilian wing, on this I show that there is also a very important Jewish aid organization called Jegota. Um, Council for Aid to the Jews. And so the the uh, benefit of these charts is it shows exactly where they fit in the structure. And and that in part answers your question, which is that if we look at the home army, so they had a Jewish Affairs Bureau. Um, its head uh, was not Jewish. Hendrik Wolitski, he was an attorney who became a colonel in the Polish uh, uh, home army. And his sole purpose was to aid the Jews or to figure to establish contacts with Jews uh, and to help them in any way they could now he's now he, the, he began the organization in February 1942 and when that began it was informational primarily meaning uh, he would gather information around occupied Poland about the situation of the Jews he would write reports and then he would present them to the uh, commander of the home army uh, because he was his organization was part of something called the Bureau of Information and Propaganda. This mm -hmm. Bureau of Information and Propaganda of the home army was known to be a kind of liberal wing. Uh, it had, for example, several Jewish members. And now I'm going to use, I'm going to, I would like to just qualify that by saying when I say Jewish, meaning these were people who were nationally, you know, Polish, um, who were uh, um, either Jewish by religion or were of Jewish background, meaning their parents were, were Jewish or they were converted as children. Um, but they were, according to Nazi law, they were 100% Jewish. Uh, so that it was, it, it had several Jews and then, um, uh, again, these kind of like you know liberal elements um, that had been very had close ties to Jews before the war. So, so this Bureau of Information and Propaganda had um, 
uh, a kind of department. It's what they call the information section. And that was headed by someone who was Jewish. And then under that information section was the Jewish Affairs Bureau. Uh, so up this, kind of like uh, within this organization, they would produce, you know, these reports, give them to the Home Army Commander, and then the Home Army Commander would then use that as a basis of filing reports to the London government. And so they were getting fairly accurate reports. But in the summer of 1942, we had the so-called Great Deportation, when mass deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto began, so that between July and September, we think that about 300,000 Jews uh, were deported to Treblinka, for example. So that's mm -hmm. the time in which um, the Jewish Affairs Bureau now became entangled in the entire problem, tragedy of Polish Jewry, and that is that the head of that organization, Henrik Wilinski, um, made ties with Jews inside the Warsaw Ghetto and representatives of the Jews who were living on the area inside of Warsaw and he became the liaison between the Jewish underground, or the kind of what we call the Jewish military resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto, and the commander of the Home Army. Now, that's in October 1942. As we move up towards and approach April 1943, when the Warsaw Ghetto uprising began, there was cooperation. And that is to say that Jews through Henrik Wilinski, because he was the representative, and we have actually documents with Henrik Wilinski writing to the Home Armored Commander saying, look, um, you know, I've met today with these members of the under Jewish underground. This is what they need. This is the kinds of weapons, the kind of ammunition, explosive material. They need training because they believe that a, a final liquidation is around the corner. They want to be prepared. They want to mount self-defense, and they need your help. And so then the Home Army commander would respond not directly but indirectly to Volinsky, then he would go, and so he was this liaison. So he apparently was able to persuade the Home Army commander uh, to help the Jews, and so let's say in the next five months, by April, the Home Army had dispatched on two occasions uh, weapons, ammunition. They started um, training sessions uh, on the air inside of Warsaw to train people in the use of explosives, uh, in the use of, of weapons. Um, and so that was like the direct the direct tie. And so I have an entire chapter there about the Home Army Commander and how he had this kind of, it appears, a kind of, you know, uh, change in heart from, uh, 19, from, let's say, 1942, when we know that he was very skeptical about the possibility of any Jewish armed resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto, and it was very, um, it, it was not willing to to provide military assistance. And then something happened where he was persuaded that, in fact, um, you know, these are citizens of the Polish state inside the ghetto, uh, you know, uh, and a foreign army is about to move in to try to destroy them. Uh, maybe they have the right to weapons and ammunition and training just as members of the Polish underground do. And so he actually began to order his men to move, uh, to smuggle in weapons. And so this is what ends up happening. And to have training sessions, for example. So mm -hmm. that's some of the direct ties that we mm -hmm. see. Well, there seems, as I, as I read your book, your book there, there seems to be an inflection point somewhere in 
late winter, spring, early summer of 1943, things start to change in terms of Polish attitude or Polish the attitudes in the Polish and policies of the Polish underground toward Jews. What happens in that period, and, and how does it shape the way this interaction between the underground and Jews happens? Mm-hmm. So that's exactly right. So um, I found it in my work that a change in leadership at the top had a, a direct impact on the policy of the Polish underground, especially the home army towards the Jews, and that is that General Stefan Robetsky, who had ruled as home army commander from June 1940, in the last day of June 1943, was captured by the, the Nazis. Um, and he had been someone who I, I kind of chronicle, I do a, a background of his, mm-hmm. his life, uh, his character, it appears that he genuinely was not a prejudiced person, um, um, that nobody could ever, uh, sorry, nobody ever um, uh, heard him, according to memoirs that people knew him, uh, say, you know, kind of like anything against Jews or had any kind of anti-Semitic proclivities, nor was he particularly a political person. Um, and so he seemed to be, you know, the kind of like, a specific um, character who wasn't anti-Semitic himself, who was wanted to serve his country, um, you know, uh, and to uh, kind of like follow, kind of like, kind of be a, a, a true servant of, uh, and that is to say that he would do what his commander would tell him to do in in in, in London, as say the prime minister and commander in in, in chief. And, and he mm-hmm. did faithfully carry out um, orders to, and the orders began with, in London, them saying you have to start helping, you know, um, providing um, arms uh, to uh, Jews and ghettos wishing to mount armed resistance. So it was both that he was loyal and uh, he personally didn't have any any um, issues with with Jews. Um, but his his successor, whose name was General Tad. Komorowski or Tadeusz Komorowski um, was of an entirely different um, character. He came from a right-wing background. Um, I found in studying his biography that he was a sympathizer with the National um, Democrats or for the National Party, the one I mentioned from before the war uh, that was for the mass immigration of Jews. Um, and um, so he seemed to have come from this kind of background in which he affiliated with a party that was openly anti-Semitic. So that, that's, that's one. It doesn't mean that he shared all their opinions, but what we do know is that he takes, um, he's, he's officially uh, recognized uh, in the middle of July 1943 as the, as the new commander of the underground. And what we, what we do know is that um, in August and uh, September of 1943, there's several internal exchanges between him and the government uh, in London, and then between him and some of those underneath him, that show that he favored reversing entirely the policy of his predecessor. So first, it was absolutely clear from his internal communication that he opposed giving arms or any military aid to Jews uh, inside ghettos wishing to mount 
self-defense. That was one thing that just became clear from his from his. So in in a, in a document that I cite, he uses the the pretext of Polish public opinion that says it's impossible for him to move forward because it would anger so much the Polish people who are so against this that he cannot in any way uh, uh, um, honor that request. You know to to um, to, to, to aid Jews militarily, so he was clearly opposed to that. He, when he was, when he, when the inquiry came about what's going on with him, and then he just, he just replied by talking about basically how Jews are in such distinct disfavor among Poles that for him to now start using weapons uh, of the underground, which were already short of weapons, to for Jews would so anger the Polish people uh, that he would lose all. All's credibility. So he clearly is against that. And the other thing is that it became clear that he did not think that Jews should be uh, members of the Polish underground, meaning there's an internal document in which uh, I found, um, in which he basically says that um, at least for now, because of the opposition of Polish society, this is what he's saying, to Jews having weapons, uh, Using weapons of the Polish underground, we sh- we cannot uh, allow them entry into the Polish underground because we won't be giving them weapons. Um, however, when the general Polish uprising begins, which they were planning, a general nationwide armed uprising against the Germans, at that point, that's when we'll allow Jews to enter the underground, and that's when we will ask them to take up arms and share in the fight against the common enemy. But until then, we can't provide assistance to them in ghettos, and we can't allow them to enter the Polish the underground. So this made him, put him in kind of like distinct, in a, in a distinctly different category than his predecessor. And it does seem like this began uh, a, a kind of, you know, a kind of um, a kind of hostile climate in, at the top of the, of the Polish underground. And, and there's no doubt, and he rules until the Polish uprising of August through the beginning of October 1944, until he's until he surrenders and is captured by the Nazis, uh, and so in this most critical time uh, of mass deportations from the ghettos, the shift, the change in leadership at the top was hugely uh, disadvantageous to the Jews because they no longer could rely on on any any kind of underground sympathy. Uh, at least from the top. Now, those at mid-level who were still like the Jewish Affairs Bureau, all that personnel remained the same, but they did not get uh, nearly as much kind of help or sympathy from the top that they had gotten under the previous commander. So there's that personnel change. One of the other dynamics that seems to be in play is the increasing likelihood that it's going to be the Soviets who move into Poland before the Western allies. How, what kind of difference does that make in, in the underground's attitude toward Jews? So this is also a central theme in the book. And it's important to just point out that until the German invasion of Soviet Russia, uh, it was entirely understood inside the intel- military intelligence of the Polish government exile and inside the home army that the liberation of Poland would come from the West. It would come from Great Britain. And that is that probably Soviet Union would, would kind of remain kind of like neutral and inactive. And 
the British and French, uh, eventually Americans, you know, would defeat the Nazis, and the withdrawal of German troops would take place in the wake of this of the defeat of the Nazis at the hands of the of the Western Democratic allies. And so their entire thinking about, um, uh, you know, about their country, you know, was that there would be a restoration of sovereignty of Demo- and that the, the new leaders of the underground, remember they were the pre-war opposition who were, who were explicitly, now I'm not referring here to the National Party, but, but the leaders of the, the, the top leadership of the Polish government in exile um, was throughout the war explicitly saying that they reject all the non, <coughs> excuse me the non-democratic elements of the pre-war government was which was kind of authoritarian and they talked about full equality for the Jews full pluralism full uh, uh, kind of democratic parliamentary government this was a totally new era for Poland right and it would be brought about by liberation from the West now around 19 um, the uh, beginning of 1942, as the tide of the war changed, um, well, slowly and gradually, it became clear that liberation would come from exactly the opposite side of Europe. It would come from, from the East. It would come from the Red Army. And so what would the Red Army bring? The fear is that they would, they would come, they would defeat the Nazis, they would continue on to Germany, and then they would remain in Poland, impose communism. This was a terrible a, 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 a terrible fear for the Poles, who, in general, in general, were profoundly uh, anti-communist and uh, anti-Russian, anti-Soviet. Right now, one of the the most um, long-lasting stereotypes of Jews coming from the 19th century um, into World War One and into the beginning of the Polish state was the stereotype of Jews being communist sympathizers, who as the Russians approached and challenged or engaged Polish forces, the Jews in the borderlands would be disloyal to Poland and switch sides and kind of like side with the Russians. So this is kind of has this history to it. In 1920, there was the so-called Polish-Soviet War. Um, in that case, we had a terrible incident in which um, one of the Polish commanders interned about between three and 5,000 Jewish soldiers on the Eastern Front, just as the Red Army was approaching, out of accusation that they were, would be likely disloyal and then side with the Russians. So literally these were Jews in Polish uniform who were interned out of suspicion coming from nothing, no concrete evidence, that they were pro-Russian or pro-communist. So the pro-communist stereotype was profound. Now, as the Red Army approached um, and as there were successive defeats the Nazis were being defeated, and and in January 1944, the Red Army crossed the pre-war line, meaning they entered pre-war Eastern Polish territory for the first time, and so they were repelling the Nazis. The fear there was that Jews were um, uh, they, they were kind of like confusing Jewish longing for Soviet liberation, right? To, to do, you know, which is um, an absolutely uh, a natural longing that if it's the Red Army that's going to defeat the Nazis, then let's hope that they come sooner rather than later, right? They mm-hmm. use that with 
Jewish affinity for communism. And so a whole section of the Home Army started starting making accusations that Jews are pro-communist and therefore disloyal and even treasonous. Now, the basis upon this is what? Well, there are Jews in the Polish Communist Party. They're not the majority, but there was a Polish Communist underground. At the time, it was competing with the Home Army. That Polish Communist underground did not recognize the government in London. Um, they kind of linked up with, the, with Moscow. And there were Jews uh, in that Polish Communist Party. There were, the, you know, uh, the Soviets created their own kind of like Polish army. And obviously the, the Soviets were not going to accept uh, the Polish government in exile with whom they broke relations, nor did they recognize the Polish Home Army. They wanted to install their own communist uh, armed forces. So this was very complicated, and it did stir up all sorts of anti-Jewish um, sentiment, and I think the critical thing is that I found a, a document of one branch of the Home Army uh, from uh, late 1943 that said something like um, something like anti-Semitism is still a very useful weapon against communism. Hmm. So I thought this was so significant. It's, it's, I, I found that in one document. It's published in the book because what hmm. it's saying is, look. If we can convince Poles that Jews, all Jews are communists, uh, that you know, then it'll increase their hatred of communism. Uh, and so let's let's use that as kind of like a way to uh, a kind of incendiary accusation that's gonna uh, that's gonna mobilize them against communism to say that you know these, these are the the Polish communist um, underground is he is headed by Jews. And it's kind of like a Jewish conspiracy, uh, and these these are traitors. Um, so, so it becomes very, very um, kind of like dangerous. But it's also repeating a lot of of, of kind of historic um, patterns that had taken place in that region of Poland, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where where Jews, of course, are spread throughout the whole region, not just on Polish lands, but in through uh, 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 Soviet areas and so forth. And the suspicion of disloyalty. So I think that is that becomes an important theme in this late part of the history of the whole army of the Jews. Uh, I'm hoping you can just say a few things uh, that will give us a sense of, of how you assess the role and the actions of the Polish underground in that period. Yes, well, thank you. I, I do think that that's an important um, subject. Uh, I had noted before um, that my uh, book shows a, a, a kind of marked deterioration of in Polish uh, Jewish relations and in the relations between the Polish underground and the Jews um, uh, under uh, the command of General Tadeusz Komorowski, who uh, took power in July 1943 and was very different than his predecessor. Um, um, but what I did want to say uh, is that I remarked before that in August 1943, I found uh, an internal communication. Um, this was supposed to reflect his kind of um, more anti-Jewish position, uh, showing that he was against um, uh, um, Jews joining the Polish underground and against Jews uh, being given arms by the Polish underground. But he did mm -hmm. say in that document that um, once the Polish 
revolt takes place, the nationwide Polish revolt or the the one that will be take place in the capital against the Germans, that's the point at which Jews may enter uh, the Polish underground uh, and take up arms. Uh, he, he he did go ahead with that plan because when the Polish um, uh, the Poles rose in Warsaw on August first, nineteen forty four, in uh, an uprising against the Germans, uh, there and, were, and just 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 yes. to be clear for those people who not, may not be familiar, this is not the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. That's yes. earlier. Exactly. So that one took place in April May nineteen forty three, and the ghetto was decimated, uh, mm-hmm. and then. Um, uh, in 1944, August, the Polish underground, which had been planning this since its inception, rose up uh, to, um, uh, you know, to fight against the Germans and to take Warsaw prior to the the uh, arrival of the Red Army, so that when the Red Army arrived, um, they would greet Poles, a liberated capital. Uh, that was their their goal. So they did mm-hmm. follow through uh, on that. And um, what's interesting is just that when um, that uprising took place. Um, we have records that about 400 Jewish inmates of German concentration camps uh, were liberated by the Polish uh, Home Army uh, during that time, and that several Jews uh, then uh, joined the Home Army openly and took up arms. And in a way, General Komorowski was faithful to to that you know to that declaration, which was in, internal and not public. Um, that once the uprising begins, uh, Jews may enter the underground and take up arms. The interesting thing is that it's estimated that more Jews uh, fought uh, with arms in the in the Polish uprising or Warsaw uprising of August 1944 than in actually the Warsaw ghetto uprising huh. in the year before, which is very very little known. Um, yeah. That there were um, hundreds of Jews uh, fighting in that uprising. Now in various formations, some were in the Home army, but some uh, took up arms in other formations as well. But it uh, it it was a in a way a kind of light at the end of that tunnel, given that we have this case of 400 Jews being freed uh, by German uh, freed from German concentration camps, uh, and we there are indications that just you know the plan was just days you know days away from uh, from Germans taking those Jewish inmates and then sending them to Dachau. Now, on the other hand, uh, the controversy of the Warsaw Uprising is that between 20 and 30 Jews were killed. Uh, it's believed up in part by rogue elements of the Home Army, and that this case, this subject in and of itself um, has been subjected to scrutiny, and there's an entire monograph uh, in Polish from the year 2009, literally just on Jews in the Polish Warsaw Uprising of August, September 19. Uh, 44. So that in and of itself has received lots of uh, attention and and the controversies about those el- those cases in which Jews were attacked um, or killed. Um, but I bring out only that in comparison, there many many more Jews were freed um, than harmed by the by the Home Army. So it, it it does show that kind of like at the end, near the end of the story, there's a much more mixed picture, let's say, uh, of the Home Army's attitude and behavior towards the Jews under General Komorowski. So so we've taken a lot of your time, uh, and I'm really grateful for, for your willingness to talk so much about your book. Um, it's a wonderful book, um, and there's much more in this than, than we've been able to hit on. And I have to say, I, I have to commend the press. I have to commend Cambridge for allowing you to 
to do the kind of extensive quotation of sources that, that, that you do, because you really feel as you read this book that you're kind of being plunged into these discussions and debates and, and that you come out of it with a, with a deep sense of what these people were thinking. Um, and so, so for the listeners, I, I, I want to encourage you to go and look and read and, and, and get the rest of the story. Um, I always try, Josh, to, to end um, with, with something of the same question or, or kind of two related questions. And the first is to give you a chance to, to maybe recommend, recommend something to the listeners, a book or a movie or something else, something that you found uh, interesting or moving or significant, um, something that they can read this weekend. Uh-huh. Well, as a historian, I, I will recommend I would recommend um, a a historical work. So mm-hmm. maybe I don't see it as kind of like, you know, uh, classic bedtime reading, uh, <laughs> you know, but but as as kind of you know like middle of the afternoon, you know, uh-huh. Sunday reading. So what I would recommend is a book that I'm constantly going back to lately, and that is Anthony Polonsky's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the three volume, The Jews in Poland and Russia. Now, it is three volumes, but the one mm-hmm. relating to, to this topic, the 20th century, um, is volume three. It was published in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, it it clocks in at almost a thousand pages, and it's just oh, the wow. third volume. So it is, but the, the importance of this is, is, is the work and the historian. So, so uh, Anthony Polonsky, who's an emeritus professor from from Brandeis, uh, is the leading voice uh, or historian in Polish-Jewish studies. And so he founded it uh, 27 years ago uh, in Oxford. He founded the journal Pauline, uh, a journal of Polish-Jewish studies, mm-hmm. which is an annual volume. It's now in its, its 28th volume. It's just come out. Um, and it, it's really like the, this pioneering uh, um, vehicle for the most important new research coming out. And one of the innovations was that from its very beginning, it was a collaborative journal uh, of, of Poles and Jews. And so that instead of having these like two camps where Polish scholars on this topic are writing in Polish, a language the vast majority of Jews don't read, and then Jewish scholars are writing in English or Hebrew, uh, or French, uh, and and at that time behind the Iron Curtain, uh, you know others wouldn't be uh, looking at inside Poland. Instead of doing that, he what he was able to do is get Polish scholars to be kind of like you know half of the editorial board, and then the submissions would be half from Polish scholars, half from mm-hmm. Jewish scholars. And many of the Polish works translated, so it's so English language readers were exposed for the first time to this different way of thinking. It was all, not always things that we would necessarily agree with their points of view, but you, 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 know, you were forced to, to look at that. So after 27 years of, of editing this and being such an, a, a crucial figure, he comes out with his great grand synthesis, this three-volume three Jews of Poland and Russia, and this third volume, which takes the story from 1914 to 2008, um, you know, it, it's it's impeccably uh, sourced uh, and researched, and to me, one of the most fascinating part of it is 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 that he synthesizes all the scholarship up to the present day to come out, you know, and, and uses that for 
his um, his, his kind of like um, views on a whole variety of topics. They're very balanced, very fair, always taking into account different uh, points of view. Hmm. Uh, and it's a book in which even just the bibliography itself is an ex- absolutely extraordinary research. The bibliography itself being maybe around 40 pages of pretty hmm. much every major, you know, every major kind of book and article um, that makes an important contribution uh, to to this um, study. And of course, he's also someone who reads in many languages, so you have this extraordinary benefit. So if you're interested in Polish-Jewish relations during World War II, you have this extraordinary uh, mm-hmm. few chapters, um, you know, with the, the synthesis of all the important uh, scholarship on it, and you're being presented, uh, you know, kind of like the, the innocent beneficiary of all this. So I, I, I do highly recommend that, hmm. that work. It's not the only one, but if I think of if I think of just one, that's that's the, at the top of my list. Well, it sounds great. Although I have to confess, it may take me more than one weekend at a thousand pages. That's right. But, um, so the other question then is is simple. What are you working on now? Well, so now I am um, just finished my first chapter of a of a new book. It's a biography of Joseph Pilsudski, who hmm. was the leader of Poland between the two world wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a person I've been interested in for a long time, and it's the it's kind of like the book I've been wanting to write for a long time. Yeah, I at once thought it would be I I would do my dissertation on this topic, mm-hmm. but I kind of felt that I wasn't quite at that time. You know, maybe had enough experience in life to write a, a full biography of a person. I feel like now that I'm a father with children. Uh, family um, and in kind of in that phase of my life that I have kind of mm-hmm. more understanding of the breadth of somebody's like whole kind of like whole professional life and be able to evaluate it more. But I, but I think he's a, a figure that um, few know about um, because almost everything about him is written in Polish. But that mm-hmm. he did play an important role in the in, in 20th century um, Europe, and um, he also was a Democrat and someone who favored minority rights uh, at a time where there was increasing authoritarianism and moved towards kind of like nationalist right in Eastern Europe. So I, I hope to bring bring out a kind of portrait of him. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a great project. Um, I look forward to reading it when it's done. Thanks. Um, and hopefully when it's done, you'll come back on the show and talk about it with us. Oh, well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Um, and like I say, have a, a great semester. And, and as I said, I hope that our listeners go find the book and read it. Well, thank you. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Josh Zimmerman, author of the book, The Polish Underground and the Jews, 1939 to 1945. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I've interviewed Stefan Irish about his book, Justifying Genocide, Germany and the Armenians from Bismarck to Hitler. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.